Please turn with me in our text today to the Gospel of Mark. So we'll be looking at chapter 3, verses 7 to 19. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 19. Hear with me then the reading of God's Word. Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon, where the great crowd heard all that He was doing. They came to Him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up to the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Thus far is the reading of God's Word. Now as we've seen, Jesus' early ministry has been quite an eventful one, as he's been locked in this bitter conflict with the Pharisees thus far. And Mark, with his brief and yet quick writing style, has given to us time and time again rapidly these stories. And he has done so, though, with a a purpose that he's trying to convey and a, a message he's trying to teach us. And that message that he's trying to convey and the purpose for his writing style is to tell his audience who Jesus, the Son of God, truly is. And he does this by giving us these back-to-back-to-back accounts of these disputes between Jesus and the Pharisees to show us that his work and his mission attested to and verified to us who Jesus truly was. And the first dispute that we see Jesus had with the disciples came at the beginning of of chapter 2 when Jesus forgave the sins of the paralytic man who was dropped down into the crowd right before Jesus' feet. And this dispute started because the Pharisees questioned in their hearts, who is this man to speak like this? They were raging with inside themselves. Who is this man to forgive sins? For only God can forgive sins. And it's in this encounter that Mark reveals to us the divine nature of Jesus. As Jesus we were taught has the ability to forgive sin and he demonstrated that ability to forgive sin in the healing of this paralytic's affliction. 
The next dust-up then that, that Mark recounts for us happens immediately after this. And it starts all because Jesus decided to recline with tax collectors and sinners. And yet the, the conflict is ratcheted up a little more as this time the, the Pharisees actually open their mouths and they speak. And yet they only do so to the, to the disciples. And they say, why does He dine with these tax collectors and sinners? As if it was beneath the Jewish leader to dine with social outcasts. And yet in Jesus' response, He reveals to us more about who He is and what His mission is. As He says, I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. I have come to heal the, the sick and not the well. We see that as the Messiah, Jesus' arrival is not what the people has anticipated. For when the, uh, when the Messiah was to come, they thought that He was to redeem the, the nation of Israel from the other wicked nations. And yet what Jesus proves in His coming and what He's pointing to and what He's demonstrating to them is that I have not come to save national Israel from foreign nations and their enemies. But rather what I have come to do is to save spiritual Israel and not from foreign nations, but I have come to save them from their sins. The next encounter, the Pharisees are emboldened even a little more as this time they come before Jesus and speak directly to Him. And they say to Him, Why do your disciples not fast like our disciples do or like John the Baptist's disciples do? And Jesus' response reveals to us even more about His work and the reality that with, with His ministry, the Kingdom of God is broken into history. Right? With Christ's first advent, He has ushered in a new era of redemptive history. With the example we were taught of the, the new and old wineskins, as well as the example of the, the new piece of cloth on the old garment, Jesus is saying to all, I have come to establish the new covenant kingdom. Right? Jesus is saying, I'm not a, a patch you can put on the old covenant. You can't add Jesus to the old covenant and fix his problems. There needs to be something altogether new. And Jesus is saying, here I am. Here I am. And so while the bridegroom was with them, Jesus says, now is not the time to fast, but now is the time to feast. For literally, God is with us. And then finally, over the past two weeks, we saw the great dispute that Jesus was having with the Pharisees over the Sabbath. And the Pharisees went even further in their conflict with Christ and they, they escalated it even more, accusing Him of being a lawbreaker, of breaking the moral law of God. And in, and in response, Jesus claimed the day of, as His own as He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And in doing so, He wasn't doing away with the Sabbath. But rather, He was saying, I have come to, to tear down those man-made laws that have made My day a drudgery. And I have come to restore the purity and the freedom of the day. And only He could do it. Because as Lord of the Sabbath, He made the day. Right? Jesus, in declaring, I am Lord of the Sabbath, was claiming to be its Creator. And as we see in response, there is the most aggressive reaction by the Pharisees as they, they went out and they, they sought counsel with the Herodians to seek how they might destroy Jesus. And so as we approach our text today, we see that after Jesus withdraws by the sea, we can understand why He does that. 
as his ministry keeps on intensifying more and more. And his dispute with the Pharisees is now there trying to destroy him. But also his ministry and his relationship to the people also intensifies as they are constantly looking for him and constantly looking for him to do things for them. As the crowd just keeps getting larger and larger and larger. And so I think it's safe to assume that as we read in our text today that Jesus withdraws to the sea, that it's much like the time He withdrew into the wilderness in chapter 1. If you recall after He healed Peter's mother-in-law and after He healed all those people that that came to Peter's mother-in-law's house. And we read that Jesus went away to do what? He went away to pray. And I think it's safe to assume that here as Jesus withdraws to the sea, He is going likewise to pray to His Father. But as we see, this doesn't last long as He is immediately interrupted by another large crowd. As we see, Jesus' uh, uh, reputation continue to skyrocket. Right? People keep on hearing His name and they keep flocking to Him. But the question is, why are they flocking to Him? Because in fact, Jesus' ministry at this time, does not appear to be a great success, does it? For as Mark reveals to us early in these chapters, many healings that Jesus does, but not many conversions. Remember what Jesus' disciples say to Him in chapter 1 when they interrupted Him while He was praying. They said, everyone's looking for you. In fact, they were rebuking Jesus. Why are you praying when you should be healing? But what does Jesus respond was His entire purpose for coming. He said, let us go to the other towns that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. And in our text today, I I think what we see on a small scale in our text is what is true of the world on a large scale. And that is like this crowd, we want Jesus on our own terms. right? People don't want to hear Jesus and are frequently missed the point of His message. Because they don't want to hear Him. They only want to hear what they want to hear. They don't want the Jesus who has been revealed to Him, but rather they want the Jesus whom they have conceived in their own fashioning. And I think that if we all think about this, we've all been guilty of this before in our own lives, haven't we? And perhaps some of us are are guilty of this even this very day. For sin is a foe that deceives and deludes us, doesn't it? But Christ, in accomplishing His work of redemption, through the application of that redemption, and through that mystical union that we share in, He has freed us from the grip of sin. He has freed us from the tyranny of Satan. And He has freed us in order to to behold the one true and living God. But He has done it because He first loved us. Not because we first loved Him. Because He adopted us to be His children through His gracious election. And it's in our text today that although at first glance it may appear that Jesus' ministry is not a glowing success because people are just flocking to Him for healing, not because they believe in Him, that we will see after further, more in-depth look at this, that Jesus, in fact, was perfectly successful. For He, in fact, called all whom He desired and all whom He desired, He saved. And He saved them Perfectly. And it's this difference, though, between those who seek Christ out on their own terms and those who are sought out by Christ on His terms that we are going to consider this morning. And we're going to consider this under two headings. 
Those who seek and those who are sought. Now as we're told, Jesus is out by the sea and His great crowd forms around Him. People from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, and from beyond the Jordan. Right? Mark is telling us pretty much that people from everywhere are coming. From all directions are crowding Jesus. And yet they're getting so aggressive with Him, wanting to get close to Him, that He has to tell the disciples, ready a boat in case I have to escape so that I'm not crushed by the crowd. And we can probably liken this to, to going to a concert of maybe your favorite musical performer. Right? What happens at concerts? People have their hands out reaching. They just want to touch the performer, don't they? So that they can go home and say, I'm never washing this hand again. This is very much what Jesus is experiencing here. But He didn't have a big stage to protect Him or a hundred security guards to keep the people at bay. And just like many concert goers, these people were excited for this once-in-a-life opportunity to come before Christ to receive their healing. That is why they were excited. That is why they sought out Christ. For healing. We're told this at the end of verse 8, the reason why they gathered. When the great crowd heard all that He was doing, they came to Him. And in verse 10, For He healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around Him to touch Him. You see, this great crowd was seeking Christ, not because they realized who He is, but because they realized what He could do for them. They would have went and searched out high and low for anyone who was able to heal them of their afflictions. It just so happened to be Jesus who was doing it. You see, their natural minds were only attentive to their natural needs. Their natural minds were only attentive to their natural needs. This is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And isn't this exactly what we see going on in society all around us? People waking up and going to work and coming home and laying their head on their pillows at night, never giving one thought to the Lord. People only caring about what is temporal and physical and what pertains to their body, those things that they taste and they touch and they smell and they see. And yet, what a shame that is. Because the great works that Christ performs ought to cause every single creature to seek after Christ, shouldn't it? But as we see with this large crowd that surrounded Jesus, they didn't have any desire to seek out Him because He was the God-man in their midst. and That He was offering to them the redemption they said they wanted. Rather, they sought Him out only as an effective miracle worker who could give them immediate relief in their lives right now not understanding that the greater and more precious thing that Christ offers to us is not earthly, is not physical, is not temporal, and is not bodily, and is not something that we gain by touch. But rather, the most valuable thing that Christ offers to us is eternal, and it's spiritual, and it affects our very souls, and it is something that only comes through hearing. comes through hearing. But you see, they didn't want to hear. They only wanted to touch. They wanted the Jesus they fashioned Him to be. 
And that Jesus was one who was to give them everything that they desired. And unfortunately, brothers and sisters, isn't this response from this unbelieving crowd very much like we see the response of many Christians today? We can see this, for example, when you hear the prayers of people. You can hear by how they pray. Perhaps it is ways that we used to pray. Perhaps some of us still pray this way. right? Where we, we pray to God for all of our temporal and physical needs and we just read it off like a grocery list of what we need. God, make me healthy. Give me enough money that I might be comfortable. Uh, I need a new car. Can you please provide that for me? I would really love a new house. A promotion at work would be great. Make me happy. And do the same for all of my loved ones. Is that how you pray? Are your prayers focused on the earthly and on the temporal and on the physical? Because what does Jesus say? Where your treasure is, there your heart also lies. Right? And you can tell where someone's heart lies oftentimes by their prayers. Can't we? This is why on Wednesdays I've been going over the Lord's Prayer. Now I know I've been slacking on that a little. So don't yell at me guys. I've been a little busy. This Wednesday I'll have a new video out for the third petition. But I've been going over the Lord's Prayer with you on Wednesday evenings in order to demonstrate to you first how we ought to pray right. Secondly, to show you that prayer is primarily about God. Secondarily, it is about us. And when it is about us, it is primarily about our spiritual needs and not our physical ones. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't pray for physical needs, right? That's not what I'm saying. He teaches us to pray for our daily bread. But what I'm highlighting is our propensity to make our prayers mostly about those temporal needs and much less about our spiritual ones when it should be the other way around. We can even see people's propensity for caring about their temporal needs above their spiritual ones in the churches they choose to attend. Right, we all know people, I'm sure, who have said, well, you know, I found this church because of the, the music they play or because of all the programs they offer or because they had children's church. And yet the beliefs of the church, those things that pertain to their spiritual livelihood, were of little consequence to them. It didn't matter very much. That's because they viewed the temporal as more valuable than the eternal. And so, brothers and sisters, let us here see the importance of praying, most importantly and most especially for that which is spiritual, not just that which is bodily. But let us also learn from this example right, that we are always to seek out the truth in all things. For this crowd that gathered around Jesus was not there for the truth. Right? They did not care what the message was. But when did people in their natural states ever care about the message or seeking truth? Right? Paul tells us this clearly in his letter to the Romans. Right? No one seeks after God. No one does good, not one. Right? We are born in bondage. We are born in iniquity under the lie. But truth breaks the shackles. Truth liberates the captives. Truth sets us free. And who is that truth? None other than Christ Himself. 
And being in Christ, being united to Him by faith, being in the One who is true, He has implanted into us His Word and has implanted that into our hearts so that we might have spiritual discernment, that we might have spiritual understanding. And so let us seek truth at all times and hold on to what is true and what is good and what is righteous and let us cast off all that is evil and false and a lie. And that means in everything that we do, in how we worship, in how we pray, in how we conduct ourselves at our home when no one's looking, in how we conduct ourselves before our employer, children, in how we conduct ourselves when our parents aren't around. Truth is vitally important. But I also want us to see and understand from our text today that knowing mere facts is not enough. Because what do we see here in verse 11? Among those in the crowd, there were unclean spirits. And when they saw Jesus, they fell down and they cried out, You are the Son of God. Now these unclean spirits were unclean because they were morally corrupt. They were evil. And yet even they had knowledge of Christ, didn't they? They said, you are the Son of God. Remember in chapter 1 when Jesus healed the man with the unclean spirit, what did He say? Holy One of God. Right? It's sad, but these demons are more orthodox than many Christians today. But yet they hate Jesus. They hate to be in His presence. They want nothing more than for Him to leave them alone. But what we see in these encounters with Jesus and the unclean spirits is a foreshadowing for us of future events. What we see in these examples is a foreshadowing of future events. Just as Jesus silences the mouth of these unclean spirits as they speak to Him, He likewise, when He returns once again, will silence the mouth of every morally corrupt and evil person at the judgment when He returns. This is what this text foreshadows for us. And so it's important to see, brothers and sisters, that faith is more than just knowledge. It is knowledge, but it's more than that. It's a sense of that knowledge. It's saying, yes, that knowledge is true, and yet it's also trusting in that knowledge. And so do you just know mere facts about Christ? Or do you believe in Christ and trust in Him? This is the difference between the crowd and those whom we read about in verses 13 to 19. Those who sought Jesus out on their own terms sought Him out for selfish reasons. They knew Jesus. Yes, we know Jesus. He's the carpenter's son. He's the one who has been going around and preaching and healing people. But they didn't really know Jesus. They didn't know Him in truth. If anyone will ever come to Christ by faith, he must first be called to Christ. And Christ calls whom He wants, when He wants, and when He does, they come. And we see that in the calling of the apostles today. Here is why, again, I said our text today on a small scale is what is true of our world on a large scale. Because what do we see the difference between this crowd and and the disciples who were before Jesus are? What was the difference between the two? The unbelieving crowd and the disciples. It was Christ and whom He called. Those are the only ones who came to Him by faith. And does not God work in the same manner today with His church? He calls people from every nation, every race, every every occupation. 
It is Christ who builds His church, not us. And here then we see point number two. Those sought by Jesus. Here we see the sovereign election of God in choosing His apostles. Jesus, in fact, tells us this is is exactly what He did in John chapter 15, verse 16. He says, You did not choose Me, but I chose you. The same thing He does for us. Because we see what man would do without the internal call of the Gospel, don't we? In the example of this crowd. They didn't come to Christ by faith. They seen everything He did. They heard everything He was saying. But in seeing, they did not see. And in hearing, they did not hear. Now, many people today will say, well, yes, it's true. Jesus called and chose the disciple or the apostles in this manner. But that is only true of His calling of them. That is not how He calls all of us. But is that true? Does He call us in a, in a different manner than He has called His apostles? For us, does He just give a, a general call and allow anyone who wants to come can just choose Christ and come? Well, no. If you are a believer here today, just like the apostles, you too have been drawn to Christ. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. If you are a believer here today, you are one because the Father drew you unto His Son. You did not choose Him. You did not seek Him out. Rather, He sought you. It's so plain in Scripture. But how many people reject this doctrine today? And yet, in rejecting this doctrine, what they demonstrate is a bloated view of man's capability and a deficient view of God. Their God is a puny God. He is a weak God who must bend to the will of man. And in doing so, in holding to this doctrine and beliefs, all you do is served to detract from the greatness and the glory of God. Because the greatness of God is seen on display in His sovereign election. In the calling of these twelve, we see God working out His plan of salvation. Taking fishermen and a tax collector and people from all different backgrounds. And He brings them together to build up His church. It is God, it is Christ only, and not us, who is able to unite people from every walk of life and bring us together and bond us in Jesus Christ as one family and one people. And Christ, in building this family, appoints twelve as heralds of His Word. And He has to do this. Because Christ knows His time is short. From the inception of His ministry, He was staring death in the face. Calvary was never far off for Christ. And so He had to prepare these men to be sent off to accomplish the mission. But yet they did not do so in their own strength. He sent them forth in His strength to proclaim the Word, to heal the sick, to cast out demons. You see, their mission was a unique mission. And it was unique in the sense that after them, there are no successors. When the apostles died, 
the office of the apostle died with it. And that's exactly what these men did. They died just as Christ died. Let me read to you, according to Christian tradition, the end that these men suffered. Peter was put to death, crucified at the hand of Nero. James, put to death by beheading. John, the only apostle to have escaped death, but he was banished to the island of Patmos. Andrew, the brother of Peter, crucified on the cross. Philip, scourged and thrown into prison and crucified. Bartholomew, beaten and crucified. Matthew, killed by an axe. Thomas, killed with a spear. James, son of Alphaeus, beaten and stoned by the Jews. Thaddeus, crucified. Simon the Zealot, crucified. And of course, Judas, who did not die for Christ, but rather betrayed Him and hung Himself. But do you think this crowd who was clamoring for Christ would have remained there with them if they knew they had to die? Of course not. They would have left immediately. They would not have died for Christ. But the question is, would you? Would you? You see, this is what the disciples understood and realized. And this is what we must understand. That when Christ calls us to Him, He tells us to count the cost of what it means to be a disciple. And what that means is willingness to deny oneself and even die for Christ or for the sake of the Gospel if He so demands it. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to do that? But we see the historical significance of the appointment of these twelve as well. As He appoints twelve, these twelve men, symbolic of the twelve tribes of Israel, as Christ now demonstrates to us that His church is the new Israel. And He builds that church, the spiritual Israel, through preaching. This is why we read the very first thing they were appointed to do by Christ is to preach. And this is what ministers today are to see as their primary purpose, to preach God's Word. Look with me real quick at verses 14 and 15 once more. We read that Christ appointed twelve whom He also named apostles, so that they might be with Him and He might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. The faithful minister we also see from our text here must be someone who walks with Christ. Right? The minister must study Christ. The minister must copy Christ. And the minister must speak the words of Christ. And yet you guys aren't left off the hook. This isn't just for ministers. Believers likewise, if you desire to be fruitful and faithful, must likewise daily walk with Christ. You must look to His pattern of life. You must look to His example. And you must obey His words. For the church, just like the body, is composed of many different parts, each serving a different function and a different purpose. And the apostles served the purpose of authenticating the message at the early establishment of the church. 
Right? Ministers today no longer have the same power given to the apostles. Right? No more can we cast out demons. And no more can we heal the sick. But you know what? God left the one and most important tool of all for the ministers today. And that is the ability to preach God's Word. He has left ministers today to be His mouthpiece and to be His voice to call people into His kingdom. And so although ministers do not have the power to heal the sick, we are called to help alleviate those who are grieving. Although we do not have the ability to cast out demons, God has equipped us with the ability to reject the devices of Satan and to help teach the people how to overcome sin and temptation. Although Christ was physically present with His apostles back then, He is now spiritually still present with us today. This is why Jesus exhorts His disciples in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. And then here's the promise He gives to them and to us who are here today. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now sadly, brothers and sisters, what we learn from this list of twelve that we have read this morning is that there are those in the church who will betray Christ. There are those in the church who will betray Christ. And we see that with the appointment of Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Christ. Right? There are people in the church today who cause division, who divide brothers and sisters, who cause schism, who bring in destructive doctrines, who pretend to love Christ, and yet all the while secretly wishing that His church would be destroyed. I don't know if there's anything sadder than someone who could be in the church their entire life fellowship with saints, to hear the voice of Christ every week calling out to them and yet never truly be a saint. I'm not sure there's anything sadder than that. And yet this is why, brothers and sisters, Peter tells us to make your calling and election sure. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, before that, he even says this, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Is that true of your walk today? Do you see these qualities, these virtues, ever increasing in your own life? If not, if you are seeking Christ for a reason other than you have been called into Him, drawn into Him by grace through faith, then you need to repent of your sin. You need to turn to Christ by faith. Cleave to His merits. Trust in Him alone. And you will have the remission of sins and the promise of eternal life. These benefits that are far greater than anything temporal Christ could ever grant to you. But for those of you who have been raised with Christ already, then you do well to heed the words of the Apostle Paul from Colossians chapter 3. He says, Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, 
not on the things that are on the earth. And when you do, brothers and sisters, you shall see it increase. And when you do see an increase in that virtue, do not be content with the little that you see. Desire more. Don't spend your time desiring that which is temporal and earthly and physical, but desire and spend your time those things that are spiritual. Desire that God might grant you the ability to love Him more and more perfectly. Desire that you might love your neighbor better. Desire that you might serve your employer better for the glory of God. Desire that you may serve your church better in whatever capacity God has called you to. For if you've been elected unto salvation by God, you are not your own. You have been purchased by the blood of Christ. You have been cleansed from all filthiness and unrighteousness and the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you. And you know why He has done that? Because He desires communion with you. And so ask yourselves, do you desire communion with Him? Not because He can take away your physical infirmities, but because He is already in Christ Jesus, taking away your spiritual ones. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You for Christ. We thank You for the salvation that we have in Christ. We thank You, Lord, that You are sovereign over all things. We are so pleased to hear of Your electing grace and love for Your people. We pray, Lord, that You would make Your love known to us more and more each day. That You would teach us to desire to do Your will and to serve You and to seek out those things that are spiritual and not that are earthly. And we ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.